Funding for Yale Cancer Answers is provided by Smilo Cancer Hospital. Welcome to Yale Cancer Answers with your host, Dr. Anise Chagpar. Yale Cancer Answers features the latest information on cancer care by welcoming oncologists and specialists who are on the forefront of the battle to fight cancer. This week, it's a conversation about colorectal cancer and other GI malignancies with Dr. Stephen Latanzi. Dr. Latanzi is an assistant professor of clinical medicine in medical oncology at the Yale School of Medicine, where Dr. Chagpar is a professor of surgical oncology. So, Steve, maybe we can start off by you telling us a little bit about colorectal cancer, given that it is Colorectal Cancer Awareness Month. Tell us more about what it is, how common it is, and who gets it. Absolutely. Uh, Colorectal cancer is the most common of the GI or gastrointestinal malignancies that I see, and I think that, that everyone sees who's in the field. It's the third most common serious cancer in the United States behind prostate cancer and lung cancer for men and uh, behind breast cancer and lung cancer for women. And it's also the third most common cause of cancer death in the United States. So clearly a very important health problem in the United States. And who's at risk for developing colorectal cancer? Is everybody equally at risk, or are there certain risk factors that put some people at a higher risk than others? Anyone can get colon cancer, but it is mostly a disease that becomes common, more common as we get older. The average age of diagnosis of colon cancer is in the range of the late 60s to early 70s, but it's well known that the age of diagnosis is starting to go down for reasons that are currently unclear and still under investigation. But more and more of us are starting to see patients with colorectal cancer in their 40s or sometimes even younger. And so are there certain risk factors that put people more at risk aside from age? I mean, certain racial groups, um, foods that you might eat, um, diseases that you might have, gene mutations? The most important risk factor for colorectal cancer is family history. And it's estimated that up to 20% of colorectal cancer patients have a hereditary component to their disease. It may well be more than that too. And as research continues and other genetic factors are identified, we may well find that more than 20% of patients have a hereditary uh, component to their cancer. Some of these cases are due to Lynch syndrome, uh, which may account for up to two to 4% of cases of colorectal cancer. And it is common enough that most uh, centers involved in the treatment of colorectal cancer are now testing all colon cancer specimens for uh, possible underlying Lynch syndrome. Other underlying risk factors include inflammatory bowel disease, like ulcerative colitis or Crohn's disease, intake of red meat and processed meats, excessive alcohol use, obesity, and uh, lower physical activity. So some of those things are things that you can do something about, and some of those things are things you can't do something about. So you can't really change your family history. It is what it is. But 
for the other things. Um, so for example, the history of alcoholism or the history of obesity or uh, consuming bread or processed meats, um, those are things that you can do something about. So I guess the question that many of us might be asking is, okay, so if I lose weight and I stop drinking and I avoid red meat, do I actually reduce my risk of colorectal cancer or once it's done, it's done? The answer is, I think, these are factors that are good for our health in many different ways, uh, not just for decreasing our risk of colon or colorectal cancer, but it is never too late, I think, to do ourselves some good. And these are risk factors that add up over the years. And I think prolonged exposure to things like excessive alcohol, red and processed meats, things like that can increase our risk. And so our risk won't go down overnight when we adopt a healthier lifestyle, but it certainly will over time. And I think it's never too late to do so. And so for the risk factors that you can't do anything about, um, your family history, inflammatory bowel disease, um, Tell us more about screening for these populations. Should everyone get screened? Um, should people who have risk factors get screened more often or with different modalities? Talk a little bit more about that. Absolutely. I think screening for colorectal cancer is one of the most important interventions we can do. Colon cancer is a common cancer, as we've seen, but thankfully, it's potentially treatable and even curable if diagnosed in early stages. And this makes it an ideal condition to approach with cancer screening, uh, which means testing apparently healthy patients to detect cancer or a precancerous condition. And the precancerous condition in this case is colonic polyps. We know that colon cancer generally develops from benign polyps known as adenomatous polyps, which over time can become malignant and turn into colon cancer. If the polyps can be taken out before they develop into cancer, colorectal cancer can be prevented. And screening, I think, is important for everyone, but you're absolutely right that for patients with certain risk factors, especially genetic or familial risk factors, the recommendations are different. And one important recommendation is that people with a strong family history of colorectal cancer should generally start screening 10 years prior to the earliest case of colorectal cancer in their family. For example, if a family member had colorectal cancer at age 50, these patients would want to start screening at age 40. And so, you know, when we talk about screening, many people have heard about colonoscopy, but now there's virtual colonoscopy where you kind of swallow a camera. Um, some people uh, have heard about fecal occult blood tests or fecal DNA tests, which don't require um, a camera. 
uh, being put up your bottom end and find that a little bit more palatable. Can you talk a little bit more about the different modalities of colorectal screening, the advantages and disadvantages of each? Absolutely. And we know that there's not one screening option anymore. There are several, and it's not just one size fits all. One modality may be different than the other for an individual patient. Colonoscopy is certainly the most accurate and most potentially effective intervention for screening. Not only is it the most accurate way to detect polyps or even detect cancers, but it has the added benefit of being able to treat colon polyps by removing them before they develop into cancer. The downside, of course, of that test is it requires the notorious bowel prep, which is not too fun for anyone, and also requires sedation for the procedure. Um, For most healthy patients, if they undergo colonoscopy and don't have any polyps, it should be repeated every 10 years. If they do have polyps, then depending on the number and type of polyps found, the test may need to be done sooner. Other options include stool testing for occult blood, uh, fecal occult blood, and the best one is called a fecal immunochemical test or FIT. It is non-invasive and certainly much easier to go through, but it is less accurate. If that one is chosen, it should be done yearly. And a newer one, which many people may have heard about, is a stool testing for polyp or tumor DNA. Uh, You may have seen this one on TV and it's uh, marketed as the ColoGuard test. It's another non-invasive test, which actually detects small amounts of DNA that are shed by polyps or by cancer uh, and can be detected in the stool. It's a non-invasive test. It is more accurate than the fecal occult blood test, but still less accurate than colonoscopy. And if it's positive, it requires follow-up with colonoscopy to confirm the diagnosis and to actually treat whatever the condition may be, a polyp or potentially a cancer. It's also important to know that the ColoGuard test is not approved and not recommended for people who are at increased risk for colon cancer. For example, those with a strong family history or a known hereditary condition. It's only approved for those who are known to be at average risk of colon cancer. This one should be repeated every three years. What about um, other tests? So things like barium enemas or flexible sigmoidoscopies or uh, virtual colonographies. Are those recommended? And tell us more about those. Absolutely. A barium enema is an older test where uh, barium is instilled into the colon and x-ray pictures are taken. Uh, It's done less frequently now. Uh, It too is not the most comfortable test, although it's less invasive than a colonoscopy. Uh, Still an option, but less commonly done these days. CT colonography or virtual colonoscopy, as it's sometimes known, 
is uh, a CT scan or a CAT scan of the abdomen where the interior of the colon is virtually recreated using uh, computerized techniques. Um, it is somewhat easier to undergo than a colonoscopy, but it still does require the bowel prep. It requires the, the clean out, as they say. And it has the disadvantage that if it shows an abnormal finding, a colonoscopy would still be necessary to establish the diagnosis and potentially treat it. And and some people talk about doing kind of partial scope tests like sigmoidoscopies. Are those recommended? A flexible sigmoidoscopy is an option. It is a shorter scope and it goes into the sigmoid colon, the lower part of the colon. Uh, it requires a less extensive bowel prep and it generally does not require the same sedation that colonoscopy does. The downside of that test is that it doesn't evaluate the entire colon. And so a cancer or a polyp farther up uh, would be missed. But it is an option for, for some patients who uh, are unable to tolerate the full colonoscopy. So all really great information on different kinds of screening tests. When we come back after taking a short break for a medical minute, we'll learn more about who should get which kind of screening test and, and, and more about colorectal cancer in general and why it's so important to screen for it and find it early. Please stay tuned to learn more about colorectal cancer and other GI malignancies with my guest, Dr. Stephen Latanzi. Funding for Yale Cancer Answers comes from Smilo Cancer Hospital. With an event focused on nutrition for cancer survivorship presented by the Smilo Cancer Care Center in Trumbull. April 14th, register at YaleCancerCenter.org or email canceranswers at yale.edu. The American Cancer Society estimates that more than 65,000 Americans will be diagnosed with head and neck cancer this year, making up about 4% of all cancers diagnosed. When detected early, however, head and neck cancers are easily treated and highly curable. Clinical trials are currently underway at federally designated comprehensive cancer centers, such as Yale Cancer Center and at Smilo Cancer Hospital, to test innovative new treatments for head and neck cancers. Yale Cancer Center was recently awarded grants from the National Institutes of Health to fund the Yale Head and Neck Cancer Specialized Program of Research Excellence or SPORE, to address critical barriers to treatment of head and neck squamous cell carcinoma due to resistance to immune, DNA-damaging, and targeted therapy. More information is available at YaleCancerCenter.org. You're listening to Connecticut Public Radio. Welcome back to Yale Cancer Answers. This is Dr. Anise Chagpar, and I'm joined tonight by my guest, Dr. Stephen Lutanzi. We're learning more about colorectal cancer and other GI malignancies in recognition of Colorectal Cancer Awareness Month. So, Steve, right before the break, we were talking about all kinds of different screening tests for colorectal cancer. But one thing that has changed in recent times, I believe, is the age at which we should start screening. So can you talk a little bit about um, when we should start screening and when we should stop screening? Sure. 
Until recently, the recommendation for most average risk patients was to start screening at age 50. But as we discussed earlier, the average age at diagnosis of colorectal cancer has been decreasing recently for unclear reasons. And that has resulted in a new recommendation recently by the United States Preventive Service Task Force that the age to start screening be lowered to 45 for most people. Screening should generally continue until age 75, although I'll point out that the studies that established the upper limit for screening uh, really depend on the average life expectancy in the population, which thankfully is increasing. So I think that one is a moving target and continuing screening beyond the age of 75 may be appropriate for selected healthy patients. And that's a personalized discussion that should be held with the patient and their provider. Now, the other thing that you had mentioned before the break is that oftentimes these screening tests are looking for polyps, which can be benign or they can be precancerous. But there are some forms of colon cancer that don't present with polyps, right? Especially the hereditary non-polyposis colon cancer. Can you talk a little bit about that? It's true. And uh, these can be potentially more difficult to prevent because they don't have that easily identified pre-malignant condition. The most important feature, I think, in identifying those patients is their strong family history. And if that family history can be identified and that uh, diagnosis of a hereditary condition can be established, these patients are excellent candidates for starting screening at an earlier age uh, to detect a cancer earlier, even one that did not develop from a benign polyp. And most likely, they should be using colonoscopy so that the uh, the gastroenterologist or the interventionalist who's doing the colonoscopy can look for even things that are not necessarily classic polyps. Is that right? Absolutely right. And I'll uh, point out again that uh, tests like Cologuard are really best only for patients who are at average risk, not for patients with Lynch syndrome, hereditary non-polyposis, colorectal cancer, or uh, conditions like that. And so, you know, but for the majority of patients, polyps um, are a great way to find cancer early. And as you mentioned before the break with colonoscopy, when we find a polyp, uh, we can often do what's called a polypectomy or take out that polyp right then and there, right during that colonoscopy. Um, tell us a little bit more about the risks of that. Is that something that's generally uh, done or is that something that uh, you you need to kind of go back and do another colonoscopy to do a polypectomy or is that something that you consent people for before doing the colonoscopy to begin with so that everything can happen all at the same time? In the majority of cases, the polypectomy or removal of the tumor can be done during the same procedure. and for most patients, that will be 
planned and, as you say, consented beforehand so that it can be done if necessary. There are some cases, including patients who are at high risk for complications or patients who are found to have a large polyp that cannot be removed through the scope, it may be necessary to go back for a second procedure or even for surgery. And so what are the risks of, of a polypectomy? Is that a pretty straightforward thing? Thankfully, for most patients, the risks are very low. Uh, sometimes a small amount of blood will be seen in the stool after the procedure, but uh, serious complications are rare. And so the, the advantage, of course, of doing a polypectomy is that you can remove this and send it off to the pathologist who can look at it and tell you whether it's completely benign, whether it's cancerous, or whether it's precancerous. Tell us a little bit more about the different types of polyps, which polyps lead to cancer. And um, you had mentioned that sometimes with polypectomy, we can actually cure patients. So talk a little bit about that as well. Sure. The type of polyp that typically will develop into colorectal cancer if left alone is the adenomatous polyp. And those are the ones that it's really important to get out. There are others, including uh, hyperplastic polyps that are not premalignant or at least are of questionable potential to ever develop into malignancy. Those are usually removed too, and the diagnosis of the polyp type is generally made after the polyp is removed. Those ones, thankfully, have a, a much lower risk. And so if polypectomy can remove these adenomatous polyps and essentially cure patients of colon cancer, tell us a little bit more about when patients are diagnosed with cancer on colonoscopy and when they might require surgery or other forms of treatment. Sure. It's certainly best if a cancer is going to be diagnosed to diagnose it on a colonoscopy in the earliest stages rather than later when the cancer has progressed to the point that it's causing lots of symptoms or even when it is spread to other organs. If a cancer is detected on colonoscopy, sometimes the smallest ones are removed through the colonoscopy alone. But in most cases, if a cancer is found at the time of colonoscopy, surgery will be required to remove the cancer. Most colon cancers that have not spread can be treated with surgery as the first treatment with the goal of cure, uh, meaning to get rid of the cancer completely so that it never comes back. And thankfully, the cure rates are high in the range of 90% or higher for the earliest or stage one cancers when treated with surgery alone. And so tell us more about that surgery. Does that involve removing the entire colon? Many people may be asking themselves, does that mean that I'm left with a bag hanging out of my abdomen? Um, talk a little bit more about what uh, surgery looks like for patients who are diagnosed with colorectal cancer. Sure. For the great majority of patients, surgery would involve removal of part of the colon not the entire colon. And for most patients, they will be sort of hooked up again uh, after surgery so that bowel function will be 
normal as it was before. Most patients do not require a colostomy or a bag following uh, curative surgery for colon cancer, Uh, but it depends on the size and extent and also the location of the tumor. And so it sounds like if you're detected early enough, um, you can either have this polyp and this very tiny cancer removed through the colonoscope, or you can have what sounds like a pretty straightforward surgery, removing part of the colon and being reattached um, for curative intent. So do these patients require any further treatment in terms of chemotherapy or radiation after that? The answer is some people do. And in some of the colon cancers that have been removed that are of higher stage, uh, including stage three cancers and certain stage two cancers, they may have a higher risk of recurrence after surgery and may benefit from treatment after the operation to prevent recurrence. That treatment generally consists of chemotherapy or cancer drugs. Thankfully, chemotherapy to prevent recurrent colon cancer has become significantly more effective and also shorter in duration over the past 10 to 20 years with the discovery of more effective uh, chemotherapy drugs for colon cancer so that patients who previously needed chemotherapy for as long as 6 to 12 months may now be able to complete their treatment in 3 to 6 months. One of the active ongoing areas of research is identifying those patients, especially with earlier stage, stage 2 disease, who really do benefit from chemotherapy and those who can safely forego it. What about radiation? Does radiation play a role in colorectal cancer? Radiation is generally not part of the treatment of colon cancer after it's been removed. Uh, We haven't spoken too much about rectal cancer, uh, cancers in the lower part of the colon, which behave a little bit differently because the anatomy in that part is different the drainage via lymph nodes and the lymphatic vessels is different. And many of those patients will actually be treated prior to surgery with a combination of radiation therapy, x-ray treatment, and chemotherapy, cancer drugs, to shrink down the cancer and prevent the uh, development of distant disease, and also to make eventual surgery more successful and uh, hopefully to prevent the the need for a colostomy or a bag in some patients. So it sounds like the treatment of rectal cancer is a little bit more intense than that of colon cancer. Are the prognosis of colon cancer and rectal cancer similar or are they different? It mainly depends on the stage of the disease, Uh, but for the locally advanced patients who get chemotherapy and radiation therapy followed by surgery, if they complete treatment successfully, they also end up with an excellent prognosis and a good chance of cure. So it sounds like for most patients, 
it really does matter at the stage at which you find these cancers, going back to our earlier discussion about the importance of, of screening. Now, let's suppose that you miss the screening. Are there certain symptoms that you should be watching for that should be kind of like those, you know, red sirens going off in your head telling you that you ought to get checked out? Yes, and it's absolutely right that it's much better to detect and treat the cancer before it develops symptoms. But for patients who have symptoms of uh, colorectal cancer, the most common ones are change in bowel habits, blood in the bowel movements, or lactary stools. Later symptoms may include nausea, abdominal pain, and weight loss. Dr. Stephen Latanzi is an assistant professor of clinical medicine and medical oncology at the Yale School of Medicine. If you have questions, the address is canceranswers at yale.edu, and past editions of the program are available in audio and written form at yalecancercenter.org. We hope you'll join us next week to learn more about the fight against cancer here on Connecticut Public Radio. Funding for Yale Cancer Answers is provided by Smilo Cancer Hospital.